the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. Sports fans, there's no better place to get breaking news, real time commentary, and powerful stories than The Athletic with NFL power rankings, player breakdowns, off season tracking, gambling, fantasy, the works. Theathletic.com slash Spot Track gets you 40% off today for that first year. Theathletic.com slash Spot Track. My name is Mike Gennetti. Happy week three of the NFL. Happy Ryder Cup. Happy college football. Great weekend of sports. Not going to dive in too much to what we saw as I like to kind of keep the ball moving with the finances and the off seasons and the outlooks and free agent scopes and all that good stuff. Back end of the show, doing a deep dive in terms of a few baseball players, a few roster construction situations in, in Major League Baseball that kind of coincide with what could be gigantic paydays and how that sort of translates into success. Because at the very end of this show, I have to give the Tampa Bay Rays some love. And I do with some data, with some numbers, with some statistics, how they got there, why they're here, yet another AL division title and uh, taking the big boys and, and kind of throwing them behind the shed at this point. So We'll see if it can turn into real success in terms of getting to that finish line. But I've got some some interesting facts and figures on some of the standings and, and where everybody ranks over the last three years of Major League Baseball at the back end of the show. Uh, off the top here, it's a good time to sort of digest the NFL just a little bit. I think that's generally what happens in week three. The penalties kind of come down. The, the fines come down. Those ridiculous taunting situations should temper off and taper off here. I know some people are very for that, and that's fine. You don't want to see fingers being wagged in faces. That's fine. I think the showboating part of it is perfectly fine. Certainly, if anything leads to an altercation in a fight, that can't happen. But I don't know. Seems like guy yelling off the porch rocker uh, more than not with a lot of this stuff. And, and like I said on the last show, let's just get through the first two weeks because all the stuff that got talked all offseason and got put into these referees' minds as, hey, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to be way more up on this, you got to pull back on this. Everything gets dialed back in week three. A, because the boss isn't looking over your shoulder so much anymore. B, because the experiment has completed and they, they like to take a few weeks to run some data on it so that then come week 14, 15, 16, 17, that data can be used at, at the more crucial parts of the season to say, hey, maybe we don't need to call taunting as much, but we definitely need to call pass interference more here in this situation. Uh, we, you know, this is now holding, this is not holding. They kind of refine themselves on the fly, but the middle of the season, generally week three to week 12, 15 now with the longer season, maybe is going to be smoothed out a bit, right? They get all the, all the, the new stuff out of the way early. They, they kind of test my, it's kind of their preseason and they'll save it for when they really need it at the end of the year, when those calls are way, way more crucial. That's my interpretation of it. And there is some data to say that the, that the first two weeks are sort of experimental for a lot of cases. So it is week three. Some of the big time powerhouses have already won today. And we'll see what happens with Green Bay tonight. We'll see what happens with the Rams Buccaneers situation as that unfolds, of course. But um, this is kind of where you are who you are starts to be identified. You know, I expect the Josh Allens of the world, the Aaron Rodgers of the world to really start to uh, percolate into MVP candidates that we know they are, certainly Stafford as well. But it's a good time to sort of to sort of digest where these teams spent their damage, did their uh, did their their homework, allocated their money, either had it on the roster, 
extended their roster, brought it in via free agency, brought it in via trade. Um, you know, we're not going to see too many blockbuster extensions from here out, in my opinion. I don't think Lamar gets done mid- midseason. I certainly don't think Baker gets done until after the season. Um, you know, you may see, you may see some other some other situations unfold. Um, there's some wide receivers that could get money. I don't I don't imagine Saquon Barkley is even close to an extension at this point. But you know, maybe Micah Fitzpatrick, maybe somebody defensively will lock in. But generally speaking, now we can sort of take a deep breath with big shakeups financially in the NFL and just digest what has happened. Um, I'm going to keep it real simple for the podcast and I'll do some pieces on spytrack.com, maybe a couple of deep dives elsewhere, maybe some video breakdowns to go a little bit more in depth with this, but I'm going to keep it real simple, offense and defense. And I'm going to use average salaries and here's why. And I understand that that could not be a more convoluted number in, in a system that is not fully guaranteed in a system that is completely fluid with almost all of their numbers, but this one really isn't. And you can say, you know, Patrick Mahomes is worth 45 million a year, but he hasn't seen 45 million in any year of this new contract. You're right. It's backloaded. It's middle loaded. Every contract smells and tastes different, but this is the one metric that really doesn't change over the course of a contract. And this year specifically, I think it's important to not use cap dollars as much as possible because so many contracts got restructured. So much got moved down to next year and in 2023 and 24 with void years added because they had to, because the league cap dropped, teams had to react. And once they started to get a taste of that, I think a lot of teams decided, hey, why don't we just go all in on this? Because A, it is a lower cap. B, these guys aren't going anywhere anyway. And C, there's an $11 billion television contract coming where the salary cap is going to be much in our favor within 48 months, you know? So they know that they can mortgage today or mortgage the future by helping themselves out today. It's kind of the perfect scenario to do that. So I'm trying to shy away from cap dollars as much as possible when I'm reporting, when I'm referencing, when I'm comparing, because everybody's sort of screwed themselves up this year purposefully. And that's kind of what happens when the NFL did what they did with the league cap. But that's not something I need to get into for the 77th time. Um, so it's going to be AAV dollars. It's going to be combined average salaries of a team's offense, of a team's defense. And I'm going to go all in on this. I'm going to tell you everything. Guys on the IR, guys who are suspended, the whole works, the full roster for every team. I'm going to kind of lay out who's at the top, who's at the bottom, what, what kind of stands out with this, right? So for instance, let's talk offense. Because what else matters in the NFL until... January 1st. You probably wouldn't be surprised if I told you that the Tampa Bay Tampa Bay Buccaneers have the highest combined average salaried offense in football. It, it's not because guys are on the dead cap. Let me put it that way. All right. They brought everybody back. We know that. All right. They re-up Brady. They re-up Chris Godwin on a franchise tag, which is high value. You know, Gronk, Gronk's back on a deal. Fournette's back on a deal. Much of that offensive line is paid. So it's it's not rocket science here right behind them. This one probably wouldn't surprise you either. Although they did spend much of their offseason on the defense, but that Browns offense is second in the league right now and right behind Tampa Bay. So we're talking 142 to 141 with those top two and Dallas is third at 140 right behind them. That is your clear and favorite top three. Okay. About by almost 10 million, those, those three stand apart from the rest of the NFL in terms of offensive dollars. 
And I don't think that would surprise you. With the, with the exception maybe of Cleveland, who hasn't yet paid their quarterback. <laughs> okay. So they're doing their damage everywhere else at a time where their quarterback is cheap. I can't argue that. I can't argue that. You know, and Brady costs a hell of a lot less than Dak Prescott does. So it's kind of the price you pay to build in certain directions. Cleveland and Tampa Bay have gone all in everywhere. Everywhere. Defensive line, secondary, offensive line, running backs, everywhere. Um, certainly at the wide receiver position for both either. They've got veterans. They've got Evans and Godwin. They've got Od- Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry. I mean, those are four high-paid wide receivers right there out of the gate. So none of that should surprise you. The Colts being fourth in offense probably surprises you. Okay? And the Colts being ahead of the Chiefs in this conversation probably surprises you. Except, remember that I told you that this is an all-in conversation, okay? So it's everybody. It's guys on the roster. It's guys that, that they paid to not be on the roster. It's everybody. So think about that as a total situation. Yes, the Colts have been banged up. They've been adding players. They've acquired Eric Fisher. You know, there's, they also have Villanueva on that offensive line. They have really brought in some non-vet minimum players here. You know, they've kind of added five to $10 million players throughout the entire summer, and it's added up. It's added up on, on that side of the ball, and, and quite frankly, on both sides of the ball. So there's your top five. It's Tampa Bay, Cleveland, Dallas, Indy, and Kansas City with Buffalo right behind them at six. Uh, doesn't surprise me there at all. Buffalo is uh, similar to Cleveland in that they've got a very complete team, but now they've also paid the quarterback. Um, here's your bottom f- five, I guess I'll give you. Miami's easily last, and it's not even close. $57 million is our low offensive sp- spending right now, and that's nearly $100 million less than the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's about $90 million less than the Buccaneers right now. So clearly Miami's going in a different direction right now with their rookie quarterback. They are not investing offensively right now. They have invested defensively a little bit, but even some of that has sort of flaked out as well. Pittsburgh's second last. It's just where we are right now. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> okay. Miami, Pittsburgh, Denver, Cincinnati, Chicago are your bottom five. Um, from a quarterback standpoint, most of those make sense. Uh, I mean, Denver kind of nickel and dimed it. Pittsburgh brought back Ben on a nickel and dime contract. Justin Fields, Andy Dalton, that's not going to do much for you from a, an average salary standpoint. And certainly Tua and Jacoby Brissett from Miami is not going to move the needle at all. So, are any of those teams there deficient with their offensive spending? Do any of those teams feel like that they should have more invested right now? Um, to me, there's two teams there. Miami and Pittsburgh, the bottom two. And you can certainly say Chicago from an offensive line standpoint, but I think we have to be a little bit a little bit sensitive with that situation because they went through the entire free agency situation, you know, period, thinking Andy Dalton was going to be their quarterback because he was their quarterback. It was Andy Dalton and Nick Foles, and Justin Fields fell to them a month later. He just fell to them. Now they moved up to get him, but the opportunity to get him, I don't think they had. They had any inkling that it was going to be there. So they changed course very quickly with this situation, and now Dalton hurt. Fields is in. It's a very rushed. I think discombobulated situation from a team building standpoint for Chicago, which is too bad because people are probably going to lose jobs over this. Truly, 
uh, it's going to be such an up and down bounce around season that you're probably going to see people lose jobs for this. And I, I, I just think that they made the right decision, even though it was probably wrong for 2021. You know what I mean? So I'm not going to say that they should be way more in because June 1st, it's hard to rebuild your offensive line in June 1st. It's possible, but it's hard. So did they do enough? Probably not, but I give them a little bit of a pass on that. Cincinnati being there, I'm going to give them a pass as well because they want, they have to bring Joe Burrow back kind of slowly here, which they are, and he's performing. He, he's definitely performing. They've drafted weapons well. They've tried to pump some money into that offensive line, but they haven't done enough yet. So I'm, going to, I'm not going to give them a pass on that. They have to do more there. They know it. They have to be more in the Ravens situation than they are in the Cincinnati situation right now. So I expect that to be a big-time move at this trade deadline possibly certainly are, you know, come next spring. I think they knew they were a year away based on Joe Burrow's injury and based on some of these, these young kids having to grow up a little bit. I expect them to be major players in March. So again, I, I view them as a year away kind of team. So if they've increased their spending, then they're doing the right thing right now. Denver, I think it's very interesting because I, I, I don't know how realistic that they thought the Aaron Rodgers situation was in February. But if it, if it was a possibility and, and their draft sort of alluded to that fact, um, that they have one thing in mind and it's, we're going to be young and fast and experienced and cheap on the offensive side of the ball. We're going to ramp up our defensive spending and our youth there as well to, to the degree of where we can be playoff contenders. We just have to be good enough on both sides of the ball right now to attract anybody who might be available. And oh, by the way, we're also going to do something with our quarterback situation now because Drew Locke is not an option for us, which they did. Bridgewater was an adequate adjustment for 2021. I'm okay with this because their offensive spending is a year away. They've got rookies that need to get paid, and I think they're going to do something big at the quarterback position. So again, they've got 12 months in mind. It was not about pushing the envelope this year there. Pittsburgh. And Miami. I think it's the exact same conversation with two very different quarterback situations. Ben wanted to play. They didn't want to pay Ben. Ben agreed to a situation that worked for them financially. They didn't feel right kicking him out the door. I get it. And they had Mason Rudolph and Dwayne Haskins behind him with no real ability in the draft to go and get the guy they needed this year anyway. They didn't want Dalton probably. They didn't want Garoppolo most likely. They weren't going to make a big swing from somebody else's roster this year specifically, and they didn't have the draft capital to do it as well. So Ben ended up being the best option, but they knew internally, based on how they spent this offseason, that he wasn't a good option. Sorry, he wasn't a great option. He was an okay option, which is exactly the Ben we're seeing out there. And in that situation, I wouldn't spend either. Okay, Now, they should have done a little bit more with this offensive line. They got kind of skewed on retirement and some injuries and things like that. And they just weren't good enough. You know, they let their left tackle walk. I always, I always vote for pain for the offensive line, whether you have a quarterback or not, because you can make bad quarterbacks adequate in that scenario. Um, so I'll get, I won't give them a pass there. But I look at Tua and I look at Ben as quarterbacks on teams that don't yet believe that they, you know, in their, in their quarterback this year. Ben's on the way out, physically speaking. They're not going to ruffle too many feathers financially. Tua's on a total showcase here, and now he's missing a month. It was going to be, this is the year he shows us he can stick. 
And then we'll start to build around him on the offensive side of the ball, like really build around him, not just one year for Will Fuller. Um, now we don't know. Now I, I'd say it's trending towards we're going to start over from scratch. Does that mean Deshaun Watson? Does that mean who knows? Fill in the blanks. Garoppolo um, or, or back into the draft with it, which is getting harder and harder. So I'd say similar to Pittsburgh, we don't know our quarterback situation. Let's not pay running backs and wide receivers dollars. We don't have to if we just want to see how this is going to go from a, a real simple can our quarterback function in the NFL situation. Pittsburgh was kind of throwing their guy a bone. I get that. You know, they didn't spend $25 million to do it. Miami's certainly trying to figure out if their number one pick is, is worth a damn. They're going to have to wait a month to see if that's the case still. So th- that's how I sort of assess the, the bottom of the offensive spending. Some of those teams probably should be higher. Many of them, I understand exactly why they're there. Let's quickly flip the defense, okay? Let's quickly flip the defense. Top of the defensive list, Pittsburgh, <laughs> okay? So, so you understand what I'm saying here. Okay, they knew their quarterback had deficiencies. They tried to bring back his guy in, in Juju Smith-Schuster to make him happy. They, they basically brought back his arsenal and way upgraded the running back position, except for the offensive line camp kind of hold that thing together yet. And it's looked bad for two out of the three weeks. And and Ben's looked bad too. So they're going to try to win some games on defense. That's how they beat the Bills. Let's let's not beat around that bush. Um, that But that defense is already banged up as well. So if that defense can round in a form about week six, seven, eight, and they can go on a run where they're just shutting teams down, especially when the weather turns, they've got a chance to be competitive. Um, but I think that's exactly how they read this season. We, want, we just want to be competitive. We don't think we're legitimate AFC contenders with this roster, and they're not going to overspend accordingly. They didn't. They paid TJ Watt, which is a good... That's a good long-term move. That's not a 2021 move. Um, and they're going to do the same with Mika at some point here, as long as he rounds into form a little bit more. But the, the defense outspending the offense in certain cases, Denver is fifth. Pittsburgh is first. Chicago is sixth. Okay. There's a very yin and yang effect to, to much of how these teams operate, which is at some point in time, the cycle is going to be defensively financial. At some point in time, it's going to be offensively financial. And a lot of that has to do with the quarterback and a lot of that has to do with trust in the quarterback. So right off the bat, we get, we get two, two teams out of the way there. Buffalo is second in defense. So they're sixth in offense and second in defense. Totally complete team from a football standpoint and from a payroll standpoint. They are all in. Uh, the Bills have been all out for two and a half decades here. So you can understand that a well-structured front office ha- is about to say, we're done being the, out- the guy on the outside looking in. It's time for us to live up to expectations and to actually push this thing down and go. They've done it. They've done it almost in every regard with bringing players back. They have sprinkled in some new blood with Emmanuel Sanders and a couple of guys defensively. They're, they're ready to win. And if teams like Kansas City continue to falter a little bit, they are legitimately going to be your AFC favorites come Thanksgiving if they stay on this track. So financially speaking and from a football standpoint, they are all in. Same goes for San Francisco. Okay, That's your third best, your third highest average paid defense in football right now. And you know they're going to have a test with Green Bay. They're going to have plenty of tests on that, that NFC West. So easier said than done. And I don't think they're done spending. I think there's... An off-season, a mid-season move, whether it's a trade, whether it's something, 
to continue to bolster that defense because, quite frankly, they can't stay healthy. So I get why they're there. They have to be able to shut down potent offenses in their division. It's probably money well spent. Whether or not it's the right pieces remains to be seen. And I'd say the exact same thing about Baltimore at four. Now, we, we know we know what's probably going to happen with Baltimore. They've, they've edged out some ridiculous wins here to start the season. I don't know if it's sustainable, especially in their division, you know, with Cleveland really playing well right now. But they're going to be competitive. Can the injuries, you know, can they overcome all these injuries, especially on the defensive side of the ball? I just don't know. But injuries included, they have the fourth highest, most expensive defense in football. And I get that too, because Lamar's not paid yet. Denver's fifth, as I mentioned. The Bears are sixth. And your Patriots defense is seventh. A good defense. Very much we're paying the defense because we have a rookie quarterback scenario. All right? Bottom of the defense. The Panthers are a lot, dead last by $10 million. All right? There's about $60 million less between Carolina at the bottom and Pittsburgh at the top. Carolina's pretty good. Okay? The McCaffrey injury is going to hurt. That offense is not well paid. That's a bit of a Tampa Bay Rays scenario to it for all you baseball fans. All right? It's, it, it feels like they've figured this thing out on the fly, and if they can just stay healthy offensively, that they might have enough. The defense is really put pick through, but somehow, some way, they have drafted extremely well for two straight years. Extremely well. I mean, guys retired, guys were hurt, guys. That, that defense got gutted, and they weren't good. They haven't been good since Josh Norman. So they're one of the best defenses in football right now through three weeks, and they're the lowest paid defense in football in terms of average dollars, and it's not even close. So that's something to monitor for sure. Atlanta is second last. It looks that way. Indianapolis is third last. And they don't look great defensively, even though I like a lot of those defensive pieces. That team needs to pay for a secondary. And they need to do it tomorrow. Especially if Carson Wentz is going to play some decent ball. I I don't know if he can. I think he does have some weapons that probably need to grow around him a little bit. But that's a team right there that needed to spend more right there. They loved a lot of their players internally. They did pay a couple of guys internally this offseason, but they needed to spend more this free agent period. It was all about Carson Wentz. It was all about fit, you know, changing the quarterback's position, which I understand the focus being on, but I think they didn't do themselves justice defensively. I really don't. Chargers are the, are the fourth lowest. Um, that's with Bosa's contract, right? And that's with a secondary that's got some contracts to it. So... Is that going to be something that comes to bite them? Is that a team that didn't do enough? Tennessee's fifth lowest. I think a lot of people would say the exact same about Tennessee. Did the Chargers, did the Titans, did the Colts do enough in the past 12 months to upgrade their defense to the point of where they can be in contention? My bet would be no. My bet would be no. I think the numbers don't lie here. Generally, they don't. Generally, you have to be in the 20s. You know, The 15 to 20 range is where you want to be with both of these lists to at least be relevant in the league. We just don't see Moneyball work with defense. We just don't. Sometimes we see it with quarterbacks and offenses. Sometimes, you know, certainly with Brady, if you consider his his uh, pay cuts Moneyball-ish, and I, I, you can to some degree. But generally, you get what you pay for on the defensive side of the ball, and that's just how it works. So I, I look at teams like that, and I'd add Dallas to this conversation, and I'd add Seattle to this conversation because that's – you know, 25, 26 right there in terms of defensive spending. 
So teams to watch for sure as we're coming down the stretch when defense really comes into focus. All right, that's our football talk for today. I'm going to flip the baseball and break down some really nerdy numbers on an outstanding baseball player and what it might mean for the game going forward. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Balance Bridge Funding, providing cost-friendly capital solutions to professional athletes since 2015. Balance Bridge has dedicated professionals who understand the industry and are ready to customize a repayment plan catered to your client's situation and financial objectives. Borrow wisely and cost-effectively, avoid broker fees, and there's no penalties if you pay it all back early. Whether your client is under contract and simply needs a bridge against their earnings, a free agent looking to invest, or for any other reason, let Balance Bridge take a look, provide a solution, and be a resource for you and your client today. Visit balancedbridge.com. All right, I want to start with one of the more underrated stories in this Major League Baseball season. Certainly getting some love these days as the regular season winds down. Just a few weeks left, maybe 10 to 12 games for a lot of these teams. The players team I'm about to speak about, not in contention, very much not in contention. So this is really their only storyline outside of what are they going to do in the offseason in terms of a rebuild or a break it down. I'm, I'm speaking of Juan Soto. I threw a tweet out last week. Um, a remarkable tweet, even to me, <laughs> somebody who's staring at these numbers constantly. It's a good time right now. And, and I've, I've dug deep into the upcoming Major League Baseball free agents. I do have a piece out on spotrack.com. We're going to be breaking that down on these podcasts over the next couple of weeks. Cousin Dan and I are going to, probably going to go position by position and really go in-depth on who's available, who's got options, who could be on the trade block in terms of that position. Just a, a really deep dive into the, what could be coming this winter with Major League Baseball lockout set aside at this point. But look, we got to talk Juan Soto here because it's fun. Again, the Nats are nowhere near contention and they knew so at the trade deadline when they basically sold the farm. Max Scherzer out, Trey Turner out, Kyle Schwarber out, John Lester out. The list continues to go on. But this was the right... It's the right time to be talking about Juan Soto. Here's why. He's 22 years old. He's the best hitter in baseball. I don't think he's the best player in baseball yet. I still think Mike Trout is the most complete player from a positional standpoint, from a defensive standpoint. And certainly what Otani has done this year, it makes it makes him the focal point of 2021, regardless. But the numbers are nuts. <laughs> They're absolutely nuts. And anybody who kind of grew up in the, in the 80s and 90s era where batting average was the focus, where discipline was the focus, where hitting to all fields was sort of the, the option, you know, a, a little uh, more complete baseball time, this guy is the kingpin. I mean, this is what he's doing is so old school and is, and is working. Now, they're not winning games, but either is Mike Trout's team, <laughs> either Shohei Otani's team. So no need to go down that rabbit hole. But it's nuts. You know, there's some advanced metrics out there that, I, that I'm going to get to here that just blow me away. I mean, I mean here, here's the stat alone that I love. Since the end of the trade deadline, after the Nats sold off, He's hitting 378. He's on base is 555. He's slugging almost 670. Outstanding. His OPS is 1.223, which is insane. Insane for three months. He has an OPS of 1.253 in his last 40. 
Nobody's ever done this ever over that long of a span. Okay. I mean, Trout's been over 1.2 at times, but never to this degree, never at this length, and never while batting 380. Over his last 40 games, Juan Soto has a 1.253 OPS and a batting average of 386. That's 40 games. That's over a month. That's a month and a half worth of games. All right. It's nuts. And he's on a bad team. And that that hasn't been said enough when referencing these numbers in Soto on the Twitter sphere or in the blog posts. He's on a bad team. He's not being protected in that lineup. He's doing this all on his own. And honestly, he's doing this all on his own. Okay. Because I've continued to pull data from a lot of different places here to sort of prepare myself for this conversation. The on base is nuts. Okay. 555 is nuts. The batting average is nuts, almost 380. But we need to go even deeper to understand this. He has 59 walks since the trade deadline. He is averaging more than a walk a game. Okay. That is the kind of guy, that's the kind of statistic right there where when even the best pitcher, a DeGrom, a Kershaw, a Bueller, a Garrett Cole, when they're facing this guy, it's advantage batter. And I don't know that there's very many players out there that you can say that on a consistent basis. This guy is not going to go for your junk. He's not going to go for your cheese and, and his numbers, his statistics, when you drive him inside, when you try to pin him inside and saw off his bat, they're even better. <laughs> he knows you, you want to go there and he's ready for it. That's where he does most of his damage. The walks are insane. 59 walks since the trade deadline. This is the, the, the spray chart that blew, blew me out of the way. And I will certainly be tweeting this on the heels of this conversation. There's a flow chart out, a spray chart out there from Baseball Savant, which is now part of MLB.com stats. And it basically shows the entire season. Fastballs up in the zone, but not a strike. So above the strike zone or, you know, above left or above right. There's 174 fastballs that he has seen this season above the strike zone. Zero swings, not one. Do you know how many times I've been sitting there on the couch with a beer watching Pete Alonso, just knowing that it's going to be slider away, fastball at his eyes, and it's going to be strike three. Some of the best p- players in baseball, they, reg- they almost r- regularly go down on that pitch specifically. So for me to see this and this alone, to start my kind of research here, th- that's one and done for me. You know, I-, I watch enough baseball to know that this is where good pitchers are getting good hitters out right now. This specifically right here. And he's not buying, like 0% buying. And, and if you bring that pitch down into the strike zone and it's at the top of the strike zone, okay, Mike Trout struck out 19 times on the high strike in just 36 games this year. And now certainly he's missed half the season. In 36 games total, Mike Trout st- struck out on a high strike 19 times in 150 games. For Juan Soto, Juan Soto has struck out 32 times on that pitch. A strike, but a high strike. In other words, he's following off, he's getting enough of it, he's putting it into play. These are insane numbers. If, if you remember the beginning of this baseball season, and we had probably a, a pod and a half specifically on the disadvantage that batters had 
this year for whatever reason. They they dejuice the ball, you know the the, the funny stuff come, coming from the belts and coming from under the hats. Remember, it's been a long baseball season, kind of geared towards pitchers, right? And the hitters had such a disadvantage. So bring all that into this conversation because for the first two to three months, that's all we were talking about is nobody can hit the goddamn ball because pitchers are cheating, the ball isn't juiced, the weather's terrible, whatever the hell you wanted to say about it, nobody was hitting. And I'm not here to say that, you know, he's breaking records for doubles or home runs or any of that. He's not, you know, Sal Perez is breaking catcher records, Bryce Harper's breaking streak records, and neither of those guys are winning MVPs. (laughs) So um, there's a lot of decent talent out there. There's a lot of good storylines, but the consistency and the discipline for this kid specifically is nuts. Okay. If it's a strike in 2021, Juan Soto has a contact rate of 91%, 91% on a strike. That's nuts. Okay. It's nuts. He's that good. He's been this good. He's been in a division that I've watched quite a bit, obviously being a Mets fan. So I, I, I have seen him progress into this and he was a bit of a free swinger to start. Not much, you know, he was impressive even to start out of the gate, but now three years in or so, it's extremely impressive. And he's 22 years old. He's 22. So this brings me to the whole conversation I had with my tweet Friday, which was, all right, you know, we're, we're a number shop and the algorithm that I use to project is heavily numbers-based. Part of it is age. A lot of it is stats. And some of it is just the eye test. You know, some of it is just the, the variance of who, who does this guy look like on a daily basis? You know, is he Giancarlo Stanton? No. Is he more Bryce Harper? Yes. Right? Is he Aaron Judge? No. Is he Anthony Rendon? Yes, his old teammate. So, you know, we use a little math to figure out those comparables, but also it's just me sort of understanding, understanding the game and understanding his game specifically. So... Stats are a huge part of it. His age is a huge part of it. You put those two things together after what I just broke down for you, it's going to be an astronomical number. So I was excited now that this season has sort of matured to a point where I'm, I'm able to use these statistics. You know, so, so 2020 stats, 2021 stats to date, this is what we get for Juan Soto's contract projection. 15 years, $503 million. It's the first time in the history of Track that I've run an algorithm for a projection and I've been spit back a $500 million plus projection. It's never happened in my head as, as the numbers were being crunched in front of my face, I kind of knew this was coming. I, I didn't know if it would get over 500, but I thought we'd be approaching it because look, you know, Trout's in, in part of that compo It's part of the variable here system here. Well, Trout's contract is only 426 million, which I realized I said only 426 million, but if I was trying to get this guy to 500 million where I thought he could be, a $75 million jump is absurd. You know, if I go to put the top quarterback in, if I go to put Kyler Murray in up against Mahomes, Allen, you know, Goff, Wentz, so some of the bigger co- quarterback contracts of late, if I get to 45.1, he's doing something right. You know, it, it is so rare that with a, with a quarterback, I get. 3 million or 4 million ahead of the number one overall contract because you have to be doing so much more than the top guy did before his contract to justify going past that contract. That's how damn good this guy is. 
This guy is $75 million better than Mike Trout, Anthony Rendon, Bryce Harper, and others, Arenado. Uh, the works. The best of the best hitters out there. And I'm not just talking 50 home runs. I'm talking spray the ball everywhere, reduce your strikeouts. Your on-base percentage is huge. Your slugging is huge. When those things all combine together, you get a complete hitter. I knew that's where this guy was going to be, but I didn't, I didn't know what kind of separation he could get. Well, that's the answer. 75 million plus ahead of Mike Trout for his second contract. That was not Mike, Trout, Mike Trout's first contract. That was his second contract. This is going to be Juan Soto's first contract. Okay. So let's talk about this a little bit. He's a Boris client. Generally, the Boris clients have gone to free agency. He's got three years left before that happens. We don't know what's going to happen with baseball this offseason. The CBA is expiring in just weeks here. We don't know what's going to happen with, you know, the, the new construct of that CBA. Will the whole team control situation change? Will arbitration be gone? You know, it's possible that we come out of this thing and Juan Soto is eligible for free agency because he's got arbitration two, three, and four left in front of him here. Now that's a big swing. I wouldn't imagine it's realistic that things change that drastically, but it could be reduced. You know, maybe, maybe that's a, maybe it's a five years or, a, or down to a four year of control, similar to what basketball and, and football have in terms of their rookie wages. In that case, he'd be entering an expiring contract in terms of team control. 2022 would be his fourth year with the team, which means he would be essentially fourth full year with, with the team. So he would essentially be getting himself to position where next year would be his final year of team control. And then free agency would be available to him in 2023. If things drop from six to four, which again, that's drastic, but because of you know, because the other leagues have have successfully gone that route, I have to think that's where the Major League Baseball Players Association is eyeing up. You know, it's working for the NBA, it's working for for NFL. Most of their superstars are being extended after year three in both cases when they're first eligible. Uh, we got to have our guys doing that. And oh, by the way, I think teams want to be doing that too. We're seeing that increase more and more. The Tatis contract and such. Many of the White Sox players are locked in. That's one of the best teams in baseball. Houston did that in, in a lot of cases with their players. So I do think teams specifically want to go that route and pay early because you generally do find value. And oh, by the way, you don't want to pay 30-year-olds anymore. The days of paying to age 40 are done in Major League Baseball. So all those things together mean 22-year-old Juan Soto should be a year or so away from this contract. And... That's the baseball side of it. That's the league side of it. And we have to kind of wait and see where that all comes into play, where that lands. But that part of it, to me, is just a waiting game. He's going to get this money, whether it's tomorrow, whether it's this winter, whether it's two years down the line. The only real Boris client of late that has signed early, early is one year early, Steven Strasburg with the Nats because they just won the damn World Series because of them. I mean, <laughs> there's really not a better explanation for that. And oh, by the way, I think, I think Washington thought they were getting, or excuse me, Scott Boris probably thought, hey, it's the right time to strike with this guy specifically because A, he did just win this thing. He wants to be with this team. It's a, it's a generous offer and he's already got injury history and look what's happened since. You know, two ma major injuries since signing that contract. He's barely been on the mound. 
it's almost a foregone conclusion that he's going to find his way to that IL sometime during a season. So I think Boris sort of read the writing on the wall with that one, but that's not the case with Juan Soto. He has all the control, Scott Boris, on this one, all of it. If he wants to do it right now, if there's a $500 million contract on the table right now and, and Juan Soto says, good enough for me, let's do this, I, I think he takes it because you take your 8% of that and, and, and put it at the bank. But he likes to wait. He likes to strike at the right time. He likes, to, he likes to know he has the right control. And I give him all the credit in the world for that. I do. He's, he's playing an old school game. You know, I don't think he would do well with some of these other superstars who are young, 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 and, and really kind of finding their legs right now. Because there's a lot of those guys out there that have other financial situations involved, that have family situations, you know, family history situations where big time money is important right now. You know, there's a lot of that out there. And there's a lot of agents that are privy to that and, and can empathize with that and say, look at if you might be worth 300 at the, at your free agent point, but they're giving us 240 right now. You know, Christian Yelich seems like he's done two of those contracts. Let's just, let's just kind of keep this thing rolling, you know, shorter, sweeter, but, but kind of impactful. And maybe we'll bounce around a little bit more in this thing. I, I don't know where this lands for Juan Soto. What I do know is, it's going to be his decision because the nationals just sold the farm <laughs> and I'm not going to say they're going to be terrible, but they've been terrible since the deadline. And I don't think Max Scherzer's walking back in that door, nor, nor would they pay him to walk back in that door in this current situation. Now they did get a decent haul for the trade Turner Max Scherzer trade. So there's some building blocks there, you know, and maybe there's a building block in the, in center field and, there's not much for me to say. You know, the farm system looks okay, but maybe the Mets take a step back here, losing a couple of pieces this offseason. I don't, I don't see the Braves going anywhere, though the Freddie Freeman situation is interesting there. My point is this. I don't know where the Nationals sit with a guy who could be worth $500 million. I know they don't want to let him walk, but are we getting to a point, especially if the CBA changes, where this guy hits the block? Because his current team just isn't in the right mind frame, mindset, you know, window to put that kind of dollars into this guy's pocket. And I think we all sort of agree that they waited a little too long on Bryce Harper. I think we all agree with that. Um, they, they didn't get anything. They let him walk. They wanted to squeeze every, every ounce of Bryce Harper in that city as possible. And that home run derby he gave us was certainly worth it, but was it worth it to them? I don't. I think they'd say no, which is why we saw them do what they did with Trey Turner this year. And you know, I, because the same can be said for Anthony Rendon, they just weren't getting value. They were they were trying to squeeze every dollar, you know, every inch of their World Series roster out as much as possible. And certainly that wasn't part of Bryce Harper, but you know, just a little bit hanging on a little bit too long. Whereas maybe this off season it was or this mid season it was more about. Let's get rid of as early as possible to get back the best trade pot, you know, situation. Now, part of that has to be, we got to quickly build the best team possible over the next two years to be able to try at least to have a chance to keep Juan Soto because he's a, he's a hall of famer at age 22 based on what his, his plate discipline allows. Truly a guy who knows this, this much about hitting and is this disciplined and has this approach, he's not going anywhere. He's, you know, physically, physical injury, be notwithstanding, this just, this stuff just doesn't go away. 
Miggy Cabrera had this kind of stuff. Manny Ramirez had this kind of stuff. And their bodies broke down. So we look at both of those players now, and we think about later in their careers when they just weren't those players. But if you had the, the chance to watch those players even now, even this year specifically with Miggy, you saw this. You saw that guys that are so above the board, right, and, and so cerebral at the plate that they're outthinking the pitcher to the point of where pitch one, they purposely do something specific to throw the pitcher off, to get the pitcher thinking, oh, all right, he's not looking away right now. He wants that ball in, so I'm going to throw that slider away. But the, the better is specifically thinking, all right, I'm going to set this guy up to get him thinking this so that pitch two, I can do this. I've heard Manny Ramirez say it out loud. I've heard Miggy Cabrera say it out loud. I've heard Barry Bonds say this out loud. That's the kind of class company that Juan Soto is in right now. So I, I have to guess educatedly that that's the mindset that a guy like this has when he goes to the plate. And he's 22 years old. <laughs> so that's why it's 15 years. That's why it's 500 million. The sky's the limit. So, you know, long story short here, he's worth it. I think 99.9% of the responses I got to the tweet when I put this out Friday agreed that he's worth it. I think some of you rightfully said he's probably going, going to be worth more. I think that's correct. Um, but that's only if he gets a team because nobody ever looks at a player specifically in baseball and says, Oh, he's worth been worth every dollar. If that team doesn't win, nobody, Everybody, you're going to see people start to turn on Mike Trout soon because of this injury, this this missed season, and the fact that, again, no postseason for Mike Trout. For six, seven, eight years here, it's been, ah, we feel so bad for Mike Trout. How can this Angels team fix their situation and, and treat this guy right? But you're going to see the populace start to turn into, why can't Mike Trout take over a lineup and take over a game? And and if war is so important, why why is this guy who's the one of the career war leaders, why can't he even impact the game specifically, you know, at least every now and then it's going to happen. So winning has to happen for Juan Soto. And that's, that's a, that's a really important way to finish this conversation because if the Nats don't think that they can build themselves up in the next 18 to 24 months to the point of where Juan Soto can win the world series with them, they now have the history of not trading a guy in time trading a guy too late, and maybe trading somebody in Trey Turner too early. They've got all that on their resume. So they're going to have to quickly assess themselves over the next year or so to figure out what do they do with Juan Soto. Because he's, he's either the most expensive contract in sports history on your team, or he's one of the biggest trade value hauls in the history of sports. He can be both. He can be one of, one of those options for you. Um. And if you're keeping them and you're paying them, it's because you've done enough, at least internally, you think, to build a winning team. And if you and if they trade them, it's going to be huge. It's going to be a huge story. But I'm here to tell you right now on September 26th, I get it. I get it because I, they have to be thinking about this right now. The, it is now and next year or never for Juan Soto, in my opinion. Because if, it, if they are still a bottom of the NLE's team... And, you know, a couple more trades they make or some of the drafts over the next year, two years, some of the international signings, if, if they don't hit on a couple of players, I, I don't think they have a chance here. 
and Scott Boris knows that, and that's probably what he's already said to Juan Soto internally. I, I, that's the way I look at this. I realize we're that some of you may be saying, look, he's got three years left of arbitration. It's way too early to have this conversation. I, I disagree. And if you remember before the season, some of you, Cousin Dan came out, we talked about the one player who could be traded this deadline that that would absolutely blow people away. And we it was Aaron Judge for almost this exact conversation. Now, Aaron Judge is way older, not nearly as disciplined, but can be impactful on a contention team. The reason, obviously, Aaron Judge didn't get traded, the Yankees made a huge run, you know, leading up to that deadline. And then into August, August was huge, but then they fell off a truck and died. <laughs> okay. So, you know, did they make the wrong decision? He'll now be headed into the final year of arbitration at age 30 in 2022, which, which means this. If they don't trade him this winter, and, he ha- and, he, and I assume they won't at this point, he'll be heading into July with three months left on his contract. You just don't get any trade value for that. You don't. You'll get maybe at best a B prospect, at best, but you're probably getting two Cs from player, from Team X. And I just don't think, I, I, I think it's fine if you've got enough in the tank to replenish. You know, if your farm system is is in the situation where, look, we got a guy here, we got a guy here, we got a guy here, not too worried about getting a maximum value for this player because we, we think we can build from within on that. If that's your mindset, go with it. But I don't think many teams are in that position to replace an Aaron Judge, to replace, you know, certain, you're not replacing a Juan Soto, to, but to replace a starting pitcher even. So... I do think it's very important for some of these teams and some of these teams with superstars to be thinking two, three years out. And, you know, as fans or as fantasy players or just as casual, you know, armchair GM geeks, this is the kind of stuff that I really look for. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not so much reading into upcoming free agents, even though I, I did spend a great deal of time on that. I, I'm looking for two years out. And in this case, three years out free agents where, some of the bigger situations could really be unfolding right now. And I think that's where Juan Soto is because the Nats just sold the farm because this, because his production has now got to this point, right? It's a team that just ripped down and a player on that team who has built all the way up to literally, I'm going to be making the most money in the history of sports when, whenever that time comes. It, it couldn't be a bigger set of extremes in one organization right now. And it's fascinating. And it's something I think we're going to have to monitor until something gives over the next three years. You know, and like I said, I don't expect Scott Boris to give in early unless all of these questions have been answered. Unless there's maybe one more trade or one more key piece that is brought into this roster to protect his lineup, to add to that rotation, which needs help, to, like I said, get them into a situation where they should be competing for the division and should be locks to at least make the postseason. Because if that's not the case, I don't know how this guy stays. I just don't. All right, smooth transition. Speaking of contenders, the Tampa Bay Rays won yet another AL East division title. You know, I got to get to this. I know you're probably sick of it, but I'm going to throw some numbers out because I, I, I just want to be speaking about this every year. I, I really do. It's, uh, it's impressive. And I don't know if it's good for baseball. I don't know if it's good for sports. 
but it's here right now. So we have to, we have to react to it. You know, maybe this kind of, maybe this kind of TB only will change in baseball over the next decade or so after whatever happens with the CBA is hammered out. But I do think that the Rays strike a bit of immediate pose to me. So yes, they trade players like Blake Snell. Yes. They don't like to spend more than 10 million on a player, but at the same time, it's not like they sit on their hands and just hope that everything they've done at in, within scouting and drafting and some international signings just magically mixes together into a pot and makes the best soup in the history of the world, which is how I feel Baltimore certainly has operated over the last few years. And I, I, I guess Texas kind of feels that way to me too. You know, Miami to a degree, but even Miami has been transactional a little bit. I'm not going to put Detroit in this conversation because they're sort of coming out of that slide. And Pittsburgh, yes, Pittsburgh likes to play homegrown players, but they also like to trade homegrown players. So, uh, you know, they're kind of the Oklahoma City to me where they send all of their best players out to teams and maybe not even the best teams. A lot, a lot of the time it is the teams like the Rays, you know, like the Royals, some of, the, some of those smaller teams. And they kind of feed the mid-market teams really good players and let them take on their first or second or third years of arbitration. And then nobody wants them at that point. Then they, then they go to the Dodgers and then they go to the Mets, the Yankees and teams that will overpay for aging talent. But Baltimore is kind of the team I'm identifying right now as let's just sit in our hands and hope something figures itself out. That's not Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay has been acquiring players. Tampa Bay has been drafting well, obviously. Tampa Bay has been using waiver claims brilliantly, especially from teams like the Dodgers, from the Angels, from the Padres, from the Brewers. They've been targeting good teams and waiting for them to get stuck in the middle of the season and have to have to waive a guy because of a massive amount of injuries, because of players that have bounced in and off the roster and they ran out of options. So when a guy has hit the, the open waiver claim, Tampa Bay is right there. I've seen it happen a dozen times over the past three years, which is how I want to kind of have this conversation. Since 2019, how are these Tampa Bay Rays kind of stacking up across the board here financially? As you might imagine, they are not one of the highest payrolls over the last three years. In fact, they are the 28th highest payroll of accumulation over the last three years. $163 million in change, cash out, only Pittsburgh and Baltimore are below them. Baltimore is at a Major League Baseball low $150 million over the past three years versus the Dodgers, who have combined for $582 million of payroll since 2019 with the Yankees second, the Red Sox third, the Cubs fourth, and the Houston Astros fifth. Many of those teams would not have surprised you, I don't think. So your bottom three, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and these Rays. So why am I signaling out the Rays? Well, as you may imagine, only the Dodgers over the past three years have a better regular season winning percentage than the Tampa Bay Rays, who have a .63, a 630 win percentage, to the Dodgers 670. That's it. Yankees are third, tied for third with Oakland and Houston at 580. Braves are uh, right behind them at 570. Baltimore's dead last with 360. So your bottom three payrolls, Baltimore, 360. Pittsburgh, 370. 
Tampa Bay, 630. That's how good this has been. That's how efficient. That's how financially sound. That's the money ball that we've been talking about. And like I said, it's not just we're going to stay cheap. We're going to stay with rookies only. We're going to stay with guys that we sought out and we're going to let them mature in our system. And when they get too expensive, like Blake Snell or too embattled, when they fall out of favor with our system, with our philosophy, we got to get them out of town. But yes, they do that. But they, that's not how they build winning teams. They build winning teams by plucking players off other rosters, by understanding the mindset, very Patriots-like, very Patriots-like in, in the point of where one guy leaves, they know exactly the robotic model player that they need to go after. In fact, they've probably got a list of 10 players that were mini Blake Snells. And that's why they put together three of those players this offseason into basically his salary. That's how it works. You've watched the movie. Okay, that's what they did with Johnny Damon and Jason Giambi. It wasn't about finding one player specifically to fit that role. You weren't going to replace Jason Giambi simply in, in the steroid era. You weren't going to, okay? Unless you had your own steroid first baseman ready to roll. They didn't, of course. It was about, it was about finding the statistics that mattered the most to their success, to their wins, and finding a group of players over a 162 that could fit that model. That is clearly what's happening here. And they're just doing it better than everybody else. And you have to give your hats off to this because they're not spending a load, a load of money, not even close. They've, they've spent more than they wanted to. I can guarantee you that. All right. I think last year specifically when they were World Series bound, they made a real, real push at that deadline and got themselves north of the 70 million mark. And this year, you know, <laughs> I guess they're overpaying again. Is that what I call it? They're at 70.8. They're actually 26th in baseball right now, which is a little bit higher than I generally find them on this list. Cleveland, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Miami are now below them, all teams you would expect to be there. So it's just a, this is just a love fest, a bromance situation for the, for the Rays and what they've done over the last three years. It's not fluky anymore. It's not, you know, maybe some of you look at that and say baseball's broken. I look at Baltimore and say baseball's broken. I don't look at Tampa Bay and say baseball's broken. I look at T Tampa Bay and say Tampa Bay has simply figured out how to win in this era with that finance financial system. That's all. And I think a lot of teams will go more that route, not that drastically. You're not going to see the White Sox spending 70 million and winning. You're not. They are willing to pay their young players. The White Sox to me are the big market version of modern baseball. They are not going to take your free agent at a maximum price. I think they regret the Liam Hendricks contract. I do. And that's why we saw them acquire Craig Kimbrell for, and his prorated contract at the deadline. I think they regret some of their bigger free agent signings. They want either your young player or some of their young players locked in early, team controlled, club option built in, they want to be able to say over the next eight years, we know exactly how things are going to go with this guy and this guy and this guy, injury but notwithstanding. I do think that's what they want out of their youth movement. And I think that's what we're going to see Boston do here very, very soon. I, I, I can't say the same for the big guys, right? I don't know if the Dodgers and Yankees will ever be that kind of model, but St. Louis, I could see it. Toronto, for sure. We saw it with Atlanta already, and we'll see what happens with their, you know, their Freddie Freeman situation, which 
is oddly extremely similar to Jose Abreu. You know, do they bring back the older, slightly overpaid first baseman who is kind of the father figure of this club and, and is still producing as if everybody in this team better respect me? That's Freddie Freeman right now. And I think they'll keep him. I, th- I think they'll get there, much like Jose Abreu stayed and has out, out kicked his coverage on that 2021 roster. Um, but I do think we'll see this become the model, the White Sox. Not so much the Rays because I think it's extremely difficult to have 70 million into 28, 29, 30 players and, and, and so meticulously have, have selected those players for certain roles, have them stay healthy for an entire year, and, and then produce at this level. Like I said, 620 winning percentage this year, 630 over the last three, second only to the Dodgers even though their payroll is 28th in the league over that span. It's incredible. See if they can actually get something done this year in the World Series. All right. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash track for 40% off your first year subscription. And of course, Balanced Bridge Funding. Check out balancebridge.com today. Get yourself started on building that bridge against future guaranteed dollars. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Chinetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Track Podcast.